You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Okay. All right. <laughs> so today we're doing a new... Thank you so much, Sam. Sam was the guy who did the uh, happy music video just now. I was also doing the camera on the left. Um, today we're starting a new sermon series. So we just wrapped up our sermon series on the fruits of the Spirit, which um, was awesome. And we're going to do a sort of a different take this time. This sermon series is called How We Got Here. So we're looking at kind of the church history behind how we got the things that we sort of take for granted within our faith, whether it's communion, hell, the Bible, heaven. And today uh, I'm tackling sort of boring topic, but I will make it very interesting. I'm talking about how we got to church governance, church structure, org charts, how we got this kind of setup of pastors and elders and deacons and bishops and priests and what have you. Um, so this is going to be a sort of a three-part sermon. The first part will be a, a fair amount of church history, talking about um, what, how we got here. Uh, and also where we go from here, I think, will be the kind of the next stage of how we got here and where we go from here. The second part will be kind of announcing our new class of deacons. We'll be commissioning them today. It's going to be very exciting. And the third part will be just some personal takeaways for you, no matter who you are, even if you're not interested in church history or organizational updates. Um, there will be something for everyone in this sermon. You just have to kind of hang on throughout the entire arc. So... Um, I always like to start off with a story. Um, so I grew up uh, going to church. My parents uh, were the pastors of the church. And my favorite part of Sunday service was not the uh, praise and worship or the kids' ministry or the sermons, although that was all good. Um, my favorite part was always the Sunday night leadership meeting. Um, I would be like, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. I would come up about, you know, just above my dad's knee. And I would just kind of sit or stand next to him while he and my mom would kind of from like 6 to 9 to 10 o'clock every Sunday, kind of brainstorm with their senior leadership team, mostly actually people in their 20s, pretty young, and talk about strategy, talk about the theme for the next retreat, talk about people issues, the gossip. It was like the best. It was like very energizing for me to be able to be kind of in the room where it happens to kind of quote Hamilton and to, you know, be in a church that, you know, was only a few years old. It was starting something new. It felt like, okay, this is like, you know, exciting stuff. And I think ever since then, I've always had an interest in organizational leadership, culture, decision-making structure, and how the, all those things works, just from an interest in sort of analyzing and seeing how it happens. And sort of what I've learned since I was 10 is that my church had its own particular structure in which really the founding pastor was like God, slash my dad. Um, but churches are really different. Um, and typically, there's sort of two categories of, ch of church structures. One is vertical, and the other one is horizontal. So a vertical church, how many of you here were raised Catholic? Okay, we have just Andrew. But there are many more people <laughs> on our last room who were raised Catholic. You probably know that you, know, you like a priest, but then the priest gets reassigned after six or seven years, and you feel like, oh, I was attached to this priest, and then now this new priest, I don't like him. And the bishop has com almost complete control um, over which priest is assigned to which parish. The congregation does not have much say over it. But in horizontal structures like Baptist or non-denominational uh, churches, it's, uh, the congregation has all the autonomy and, and authority to hire the pastor they want, to fire the pastor that they don't like. Um, and the trade-off is sort of less accountability. You're sort of your own little island. And our church, I would say for the most part, is a horizontal church. Um, there's no denomination we're accountable to. 
I sort of got kicked out of that when we became LGBTQ affirming. Uh, I mean, and although we have a network of churches we're a part of called the WIS Collective, for the most part, you know, we sort of make decisions on our own. But within our church, there is a hierarchy of accountability. We have our leadership team, or otherwise known as our elders or our board. Leslie is, is here and is, is, is a part of that. And so they sort of really oversee and steward um, the long-term vision of our church to make really final decisions on hiring, on a budget, and on governance um, and finance. And then sort of under them is Jonathan, our senior pastor, who just came up and did prayer and announcements. Um, you kind of more or less can guess what he does, preaching, vision, pastoral care. And under us is, is Mackenzie, me, Angela, Robbie, uh, Sean, and, few, and the kids, and Don and Jen, who are part-time, and we kind of oversee different domains. But under us is a, a volunteer leadership team, or what we call deacons. And I'll explain a little bit what deacons mean in a context of our church. I know some of you grew up with deacons who were responsible for administering communion. Some of you grew up with deacons responsible for administering certain rituals. Some of us grew up in denominations that deacons were actually ordained. And they were ordained and they were commissioned to preach or to you know, lead a certain sacrament. Deacons here don't do that. <laughs> So don't go up to them and ask them your burning theological questions, hoping they have an MDiv, unless they happen to have an MDiv, in which case, please do. Uh, and they're, you know, so whatever expectations you have, just put them aside. Our deacons here are essentially leaders, volunteer leaders who oversee ministries of our church. Care being a ministry, justice as a ministry, small groups, um, community partnerships, what have you, data. Um, and so they're responsible for those domains. So you have questions about those, and we'll announce each of them at the end of service. Um, just go up to them, and can you ask them questions about how to get involved or questions about their ministry? Um, and although I would say the most visible leaders of our church are sort of those who are on stage preaching or leading worship, um, the, the, the top layer I mentioned, the elders, and the bottom layer of deacons are actually sometimes the people who do um, the bulk of the work that makes a church function. Um, it's not less sexy, it's not as visible, but this larger circle outside of the sort of cohort of few visible leaders um, really hold up so much of our church. And I would argue in some ways is, is more important than the work that happens visibly on stage given the current phase of our church. So you might ask, great question, what phase of church are we in? Um, I would say you know, the first phase of church, I wasn't really here around for it. Before when I gathered, we were kind of in just kind of startup mode. We were start and restarting and what have you, where Jonathan kind of just met with every single person, and then you would text someone to like volunteer on Sunday service, or you would like get coffee with a friend and be like, hey, but how about you lead a small group? Um, and it was very much based on relationships, um, which is great. It had this organic ethos, but it wasn't super process-driven or systems-driven, which is fine, but once you get a little bit bigger, and once you have different kind of groups coming in, um, you have to make sure that a church doesn't run based on who's friends with whom, which can be biased towards like certain in-groups that you know, are defined by race and class and what have you. Um, and so now our church now needs like databases to keep track of who's being careful, who's not so known falls through the cracks. We need clear and standardized processes for how to recruit small group leaders, how to request help so it's not based on who's friends with the senior pastor. Um, and all that requires like a team of people beyond just a few visible leaders to build the infrastructure to support and care for truly our growing community and sort of take us into the next phase of our church. And I think this transition I'm talking about, phase one, which is startup mode, and phase two, which is, I don't know, organization building mode, I guess, um, is precisely, I think, where you see the early church in Acts chapter six. So I'll read, read a lot of our scripture for today. 
Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So there's a lot kind of happening there. Just notice the first phrase, the disciples were increasing in number. So the early church is getting kind of big. And the Hellenists, which are basically the Greek-speaking Jews, are saying, hey, our people, our widows, our community are not being equitably cared for compared to the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And that's because the Hebrew-speaking Jews were the in-group. They were the dominant group, and the apostles were Hebrew-speaking. And so, of course, you know, they just made decisions and distributed resources based on their relationships, who they knew, and bias is going to affect them. And so the apostles said, oh, wow, you know, we can see how our limits of time and resources, but also our just human biases, are getting in the way of the growth and care of our church. So what we need to do uh, is we need to like, recognize what we can and cannot do and what we have to prioritize. And so this is what happens next. And the 12, 12 meaning 12 apostles, called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. While we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And what do we find out? The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This last part in particular is important because it shows you that this, this decision to commission this new class of deacons basically pays off. You, you go from the disciples are increasing and growing to the number of disciples are increasing greatly, indicating that essentially they hit a step change in their growth. The capacity of the organization is doubled. And, you know, basically the organization is no longer hamstrung by the limitations and the biases of the founding team. Well, I think that's quite interesting is that as important as deacons are, we don't really hear their names mentioned a whole lot in the rest of the Bible. I mean, Stephen does show up, but he, like, dies in the next chapter. Spoiler. Um, but then, you know, Philip, Timon, I don't know how to pronounce these names, like Parmesan or Parmenas. Um, and and, and our, I don't have, like, I usually text Spirit asking how to pronounce Greek names, but it was too many names to text him. Um, and our scriptures are, like, mostly focused on, like, Paul, Peter, James, kind of like the charismatic founders who founded the early church. And I was, I was trying to curious about why that is, and I read this book by James Burchell, who wrote the book um, From Synagogue to the Church, which looks at how the offices of the synagogue transformed into the offices of the church. Super interesting if you're interested in that question. And he says this, we know the names of almost no church officers in the first half of the century, and we know the names of almost no charismatic leaders in the second half. So the first half of the century, we get the charismatic leaders, like Peter, Paul, James. They're the ones writing letters, kind of mobilizing people to come. And then the, kind of, the charismatic leaders sort of fade out in the next 50 years. Instead, we hear about the church administrators, Bishop Pope Clement I of Rome, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, Bishop Arrhenius of South of France. Any guesses as to why that might be? More locations, yeah. So you need governance, people to kind of steward the energy and be like, okay, now we're multi-site, what do we do? Okay. And I think, I think kind of what you're getting at, Ravi, is, is quite spot on in the sense that Birchall says, the first phase of the early church was all about energy and enthusiasm and zeal. Anyone who felt moved by the spirit could speak. People were sharing resources with each other. 
Sometimes women were talking too much and Pilate tell them to like maybe quiet a little bit because they were like, oh, and now I have the opportunity to speak because I'm moved by the spirit. Um, but I, that was a joke. I, women should talk as much as they want. Um, <laughs> it, it was more, I, you, know, you know what I'm saying. Um, so it was the age, age of zeal and enthusiasm. But the second phase, you needed people to take that energy and kind of steward it and sort of be, um, create some stability and consensus and continuity throughout everything. And the second phase involved people who maybe aren't the charismatic people on stage. Maybe they're not the extroverted people at the party, but they're doing kind of the quiet work, maybe sometimes behind the scenes, of building and expanding and maintaining an organization that goes unnoticed. And so I'm, I love this quote from Birchall, and I'm going to quote it twice. He says this, What the earliest believers came to see was that the Spirit also lived in the church through the dutiful service of their officers, quietly, imminently, ordinarily, with gentler signs and wonders. The Lord was not only in the storm and the earthquake and the fire, but also in the gentle whisper of the breeze. So the last part of the quote, does, anyone, does that sound familiar to anyone? It, it references 1 Kings uh, chapter 19 where Elijah is talking to God, and God said, I'm going to pass by you. And then Elijah stands on this mountain, and then this huge wind comes and shakes up the trees. But the Bible says God is not in the wind. Earthquake comes and really shakes the foundations of the mountain. But God is not in the mountain. A fire comes and like swoops down from heaven and burns everything up. It says God is not in that fire. And the passage ends by saying, then a still, small voice spoke to Elijah. So my question for all of you is, how is this still small voice of God, of the Holy Spirit, showing up in your lives and in our church today? We're talking about deacons, so I'm just going to sort of brag on them a little bit. You know, I see Xanifa, you know, you're our care deacon. I know you're watching online, on Facebook, and maybe YouTube as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, I see how the still small voice of the Spirit is working in this badass care team we put together, which is like mostly women of color in our church. I don't know how many of you know that Xanifa and her team have this spreadsheet that keeps track of anyone who's ever requested help or prayer, and they assign a care team member to it that's color-coded to indicate what need they've they have indicated and whether that need was fulfilled or not. Um, this past two months, our care team has put together meal trains for two different households in need. They've gone on calls to kind of do a risk assessment of people who are in acute crisis, the still small voice is at work in these spreadsheets, in these phone calls, in these group chats. I want to talk to Brielle, um, who's actually in the relay right now. She's just banning the doors outside. Our deacon who oversees our LGBTQ ministry. And every Zoom call, every email you sent through planning center reaches like hundreds of people throughout actually the nation who don't have progressive churches they can go to in their cities. And I think the still small voice of the Holy Spirit is at work in helping people see that even just for a little bit that there's a home for them in church and that queer communion as Brielle has told me can be a launching pad for them into greater leadership greater community and that it can be this accelerant process Adele, Carissa, and Jenny are justice deacons. You have been sort of on fire the past few months. You've gotten people in our congregation to learn who their local representatives were for the first time, call them for the first time, phone bank for the first time. You're activating people in the political democratic process. And that's amazing Holy Spirit work. Um, and I, you know, just kind of help but think about how amazing would it be if one day, maybe years down the line, our church became such a powerful organizing force that local organizers would call up our justice deacons and say, hey, we need Forefront to show up 
to move the needle on this issue because your presence last time made a difference. Kim Owens, you've recently stepped into the, our role as groups deacon, and I've just been so impressed by the energy in which you bring up to your role. Uh, most people don't know this, but you know, when I'm often calling Kim to talk about group responsibilities, she's on video and she's just walking on a straight back to her apartment because she's just come from like a multi-hour protest uh, for Black Lives Matter or what have you. And we'll be talking, she's like, I got it, I got it, and the next day like everything is done. Um, just amazing energy, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how the Holy Spirit can kind of work in integrating, I think, your passion for justice and your love for connecting people into community. Eric, I think Eric is somewhere, or did he leave? Is in the back. Um, Eric's here every Sunday checking people in through a planning center. Um, Eric, our data deacon, I don't understand most of what you say on Slack <laughs> or what have you, but I, I believe the Holy Spirit is at work at like every line of code your team writes, every planning center tutorial you've, you've done for us. And given like the fact that our church is, is mostly digital, none of our ministries can really reach their goals without the work of your team. And last but not least, Jim, our podcast deacon, who's running the slides today with your uh, awesome mask. Um, I, some of you maybe don't know how much thought Jim puts into making sure that the guests he interviews for our Forefront podcast, and Jim, as a result, you have become one of the main voices of our church into, on the national stage, how much thought he makes sure that those guests are reflective of our commitment to anti-racism uh, and reflective of our, his desire and our desire to kind of broaden people's perspective beyond the narrow stream of white patriarchal evangelicalism. And so while I think these deacons are amazing, the work of the, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit is at work with them, the truth is also that our deacons, for the most part, know they cannot do anything without volunteers. Um, they can be as awesome as they want, but they don't, they don't have people volunteering their team. They don't have people giving money to help support their work. The work cannot be done. And the truth also is kind of the risk you take in sort of going to the second phase where you have people in new titles and new org chart is that you lose some of that original ethos of everyone volunteering, everyone kind of being community with one another. And I think that's something that we do also see in the early church, the original ethos um, that I hope we don't lose. The word deacon, the Greek was diakonia, um, which was originally just meant anyone who serves and helps others in need. But then it kind of got officialized, and now it's like these specific people are deacons. Or, you know, the word liturgy, liturgia, originally just meant generous acts of service and activism by any Christian. And now it means specifically these rites of prayer and worship you do during service. Um, or the word minister, it usually just meant servant, and now it means like top person in command who is clergy at our church. So uh, there was a time, though, I just wanted, before we get sort of all organized and institutionalized, where everyone was ministering, everyone was deaconing, so to speak, everyone was serving. And so my question is, how can we bring in and retain some of the original ethos into forefront as we move into the next phase of our church? And I mentioned First Kings earlier with Elijah and God moving and speaking through the fire, not through the fire, through the earthquake, through the wind, but through the still small voice. What I did not mention was that Elijah was at the weakest point in his life. He was very depressed. He was definitely suicidal. He tells God, please take my life. It's not worth me being born. And God chooses to meet him where he is by speaking to him in a quiet, still voice. And I want, in particular now, this is the third part of the sermon, to address anyone who feels, who does not consider themselves a leader. Maybe you're introverted, you have social anxiety, 
maybe you've never been considered a leader because you're a person of color, you're a woman, you're queer, you're disabled, you didn't go to college. I don't want to speak directly um, to you all. And consider whether there's a still a small voice asking you to step up and lead. And maybe it's not leading in a highly visible, charismatic way like on stage. Maybe it's helping out with the slideshow on the roulette or you know, hoping, helping like create spreadsheets for the care team. But the Holy Spirit, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit is still at work in all of that regardless. And as you maybe are thinking about the still small voice, I want to acknowledge that there might be another competing voice that says, you're not a leader. You're, you have all these flaws, these weaknesses, um, these limitations. And if you lead, you're, you're going to be exposed. And so I never finished my story of when I was like 9 or 10 and uh, attending these Sunday leadership meetings. Um, you know, my parents were always like encouraged all of us to go to, to be ministers, to lead in church, to start churches. Um, and I didn't have any qualms about that. But something changed when I turned 13. Around that age, like middle school, I think, um, I realized I was in love with my best friend at the time, who was a girl. And the moment I realized it, the second immediate thought was like, no one should ever, can ever know about this. And then I, that's what I did. So I kept that part of myself, for the most part, a secret from my family, from a Christian community. And by doing that, I was able to be a leader in church. I was able to be the president of like a Christian club on campus, to play keyboard, lead a Bible study in my parents' church. Um, and I just kind of kept that part of myself on the down low because I knew what would happen. And I saw it happen. I saw a really good friend of mine in a varsity, which is a Christian student organization, come out and tell people she was dating a girl. And then see, asked her to be step, asked, people asked her to step down for leadership. Her mentor asking her to apologize to her. Um, just going through a really incredible traumatic experiences. And I saw that and said, I did not want to be a part of that. I don't want that to happen to me. I have to stay hidden. Um, I would go to church. I would go to church. I went to a great church in New Life Fellowship uh, in Queens, uh, which I still admire. And I went to a newcomer's dinner. And, you know, this is part of a Q&A. We talked to the staff. And I had all these questions, but the only question I could really think of was, what is your policy in church discipline? <laughs> because I sort of, like, figured, you know, if I volunteered and I would lead, at some point they would find out I was dating someone, and I want to be prepared for how they would ask me to step down. I want to be prepared for how they would ask me to leave the church if necessary. I mean, I, I don't really know their policy, but just want to be prepared. Um, I would go to another church, Episcopal Church in Manhattan, All Angels, and I, 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 was, I gave. I was pretty consistent. I attended retreat. I brought my mom to a retreat, but I never volunteered. I never asked to do anything because, you know, if my girlfriend came, I just made sure we wouldn't hold hands, we wouldn't too close because I knew that would have to be a conversation um, about it. So it's kind of weird now preaching to you on stage, working in a church as a queer person. It does feel surreal sometimes. Um, but I would say the, probably the moment it, it really hit me was when I was commissioned as a deacon in 2018. Uh, I was standing here in front of a bunch of other deacons. The first time we were trying the deacon thing out. And my good friend from university who I mentioned uh, came to the service, and my girlfriend came to the service, and they were seated next to each other. And throughout the entire commissioning, <laughs> they are just like bawling and sobbing. And I could not look at them, because I knew if I did, I would start breaking down as well, because they knew all the years. They knew the backstory. And... Um, 
that's, that's sort of what it means to me to be here in front of you. First as a deacon and then small group leader and now on staff, I'm preaching to you all today. What is the next paragraph of my sermon? <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's a powerful thing to be publicly entrusted with leadership, you know, um, to have that moment. It was, it was only like two minutes at the end of service, really short. But to be there and sort of to see my girlfriend there and to be like, okay, she's part of the audience, she's part of this moment, I don't want to hide. And I, I, think, I think about those experiences now that, you know, technically I have power and all these things, I have a title. Um, and one of the favorite things I really like to do in my job is to notice people who are on the sidelines, um, to notice people who are on the periphery who might be shyer and to get coffee with them, chat with them, learn, see if there's a heart that they have to really grow and learn, but they just maybe are a bit shy about stepping into leadership. And I like to be able to kind of take them and accelerate their track into leadership and advocate for them in front of other deacons or, or staff members. I like to be able to talk to someone who has never, never been asked before, have you considered preaching at Forefront? Um, because the motorcycles. Um, uh, because, you know, we really love to hear your voice and, you know, we have this preaching boot camp, we love to train you, and maybe the person's like, well, I've never been asked before. I've always been told, you know, I need to be quiet or I, I, my, I don't have legitimacy or authority. And I think all those years I sort of spent in the periphery, I think are, I, I, I see how they're being put to use, essentially. I see how an error of myself that I once considered a weakness, a source of shame, can be turned into a strength, a skill in what I do. So if you are listening, you're kind of maybe hearing still a small voice, but you're wondering, there are competing voices, I just ask you, challenge you to reframe how these areas that you consider weaknesses or limitations of vulnerabilities can actually become a source of strength, can actually be a superpower, perhaps even, for you yourself and our church. Because this church has changed so many lives, it's changed mine, and I believe it can change another person's life here in New York City or someone else watching in a remote area of Texas or the Midwest. And I think our church has a message that is good news, that the gospel is far deeper and far wider than we can ever ask for or imagine. And I think we need everyone to make that happen. We need everyone to kind of be paying attention to that voice and asking, hey, is this my time to step up? So will you join me in making that happen? And stepping up and leading, giving your time, maybe you can't give your time, your money, what have you. I'm very happy to talk to anyone if you're interested. You know, my email is sarah with an H at forefrontnyc.com. Because maybe your life will be changed in the process, as mine has as well. Let us pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who can do infinitely more than we can ever ask for or imagine. I thank you that um, the smallest whispers of desires in our hearts, that you speak in the silence of our heart, as Mackenzie sang earlier on, that you continue to speak to everyone here who is listening, um, everyone who watched this after the service ended, um, that you speak in our hearts to move us to take a step forward in the direction and the call you have for our lives, whether it's in our workplace, in our families, in this church, because we know that you are a God who can take our lowest points, our most depressed points, as Elijah was, and turn those moments into a powerful experience of restoration, of strength, and of miracles. In your name, I pray. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.